Good evening. My name is Noelin. I'm a member here, and I'll be reading our sermon scripture passage for tonight from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 uh, and 2. Uh, we have copies of the Bible, the Black Bibles in the pews. Feel free to grab one and use it during the service, um, and please place it back. But if you'd like a copy to take home with you, we have the Blue Bibles um, on the table at the front that you can take with you as a, as a gift to you. Um, again, we'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, friends. Um, Thanks for having me again. Um, I wish I could say... It's good to see so many new faces, but I don't actually have my glasses, and so (laughs) I can't really tell. It looks like um, there are more faces, but um, I told your pastor that um, I really do love coming here. Uh, My church is now about 12 years old, and um, Steve, how old are you all? Two and a half. And I share this every time I come here. Um, you always look to like that next stage uh, as a church, but also just as individuals. Have you noticed like maybe when you're single, you sometimes like fantasize about when you're married. When you're married, you fantasize about having children. When you have children, you fantasize about not having children, <laughs> right? So we're always looking to the next thing. And uh, one of the things um, the book of Ecclesiastes actually talks about is learning to enjoy the moment. Not in a carpe diem way, but really in a wise way. And this is a very precious time. Uh, your church, you know, God willing, will grow. And someday you will miss the uh, small feel, like of having 50, 60 people. It's a very precious time. And so uh, it's good to be with you all. <clears throat> uh, you're working through the book of Hebrews, right? And um, I wanted to just begin by just reminding you of what the author assumes, right? Now, C.S. Lewis, you might have heard of him. He... Um, He has this really great quote where um, he basically says that we're really good at name-calling now, but we don't actually think about, like, the truth behind what's being said here. So why am I mentioning that? Uh, The book of Hebrews actually assumes something that might feel negative, but the longer you live, um, you realize that there's a lot of truth in it. And it's basically this. Your chances of keeping the faith are actually pretty low. I know that's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> Sunday inspiring message, right? But <clears throat> um, your chances of finishing the race are actually pretty low. Um, and if you think about it, that actually makes a lot of sense. Look at the data from the Old Testament. Like most of Israel fell away. Most of the kings fell away. Most, you know, and then even in the New Testament, do you notice that when Jesus first begins his ministry? I mean, it's awesome. He provides, like, uh, free food and, like, incredible wine, um, like, like unfailing medical services. And so in the beginning, it seems like, you know, things are going really well, and then eventually people turn away. The more they realize what this is all about. And so um, I think that... I know it's hard to hear, right? But there's something about, like, being sober that, wow, 
my chances of falling away are pretty high. They're actually, that's, the book of Hebrews is written to like, encourage the saints not to fall away. But he would not have written like all these chapters if being a good pastor, he, he knew that your chances of falling away are pretty high. And um, over like 20 years ago when I was in seminary, like the professors would always tell us these stories about like pastors that left the ministry after five, ten years, and even like seminary professors. And at that time, uh, many of us we were like, "Oh yeah, those weak people, like you know, <laughs> those Judases." But like, um, but I will stay until the end. Now that over twenty years have passed, um, the uh, the curve remains the same. And um, I want to encourage you in that way to take to heart what the author of Hebrews is really saying. He's really saying, hey, as a loving pastor, you have to be like just aware that there are so many just temptations. And not just temptations, there's just life. Life is so cruel. And uh, it's very easy to just apostatize, right? And so you have to go into the book of Hebrews realizing that that's where he's coming from and then take a step back and ask yourself like very honestly um, how do you like assess yourself my wife and I we talk about this all the time by the way I'm going to bring her and like our kids someday Um, someday and uh, because they actually do exist right but uh, you know we talk about this a lot we we talk about how wouldn't it be amazing like, if you ask us, like, what our dreams are in life, we don't aim very high. That way we never miss and we're never disappointed, right? But we say, wouldn't it be an amazing thing if, if we live beyond 30 to 50 years from now, that we're still following Jesus and that to the end, like, we make it? That, that in itself would be a grand miracle. So I want to encourage you, like, it's a hard question but ask yourself if you are overly confident. This is what one of my mentors, he said to me. He says, you know, it's very wise to overestimate the power of sin and to underestimate your ability to persevere. And when I heard that when I was 20, I was like, nonsense. When I heard that when I was 30, I was like, hmm. And then in my 40s, I'm like, Mm. <laughs> like there, there's a lot of truth there, okay? And so to that end, <clears throat> today I want to just talk about one image that the author presents to us. He says that you might have a better chance of making it, making it until the end, that is keeping the faith, if you look at life, specifically your call to Jesus, as a race, as a race, okay? And that's the main thought I want to give to you today, like as a race. And... Um, Three points, the perspective, life as a race. And then number two, how we are to run this race. And number three, the motivation to actually run. Okay, uh, Again, uh, the perspective that life is really a race. right? And number two, that how we should run. And number three, motivation to run. Okay, So let's begin. So in verse 12, you notice <clears throat> the author says at the second half of verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Greek term there is agon, right? And does that remind you of any word? Agon, it's agony, agony. 
Because the sense here is not, do, do some of you go to the gym? Like, I don't know if Pastor Steve does. But <laughs> like, those muscles are not natural. When I, when I was teaching him as his seminary professor, I was very distracted because I was like, wow, those are nice guns. <laughs> right? so, but, you know, like, back in the days when I used to, uh, when I used to go to the gym, it's interesting. There are like these two types of people that work out. And you know if you've been to the gym. There are those people that, they're at the gym like for hours, but they're just having a grand time. You know, they have a magazine, they're listening to music, they go like on the stroller. I'm not a stroller, like, a, <laughs> like you can tell my life stage, you know, on a bike or something. They lift like a five-pound weight. And, they, you know, they're, they're just like, I don't know, they're just hanging out there. And then there are those very obnoxious people. Again, Pastor Steve was probably one of them, right? Like, just grunting, they're sweating, they're making you feel like, what, what am I doing with my life, right? And I think that, <clears throat> see, when the author here says that, let us run the race, he's not saying let's go on a stroll. He's not saying that life is like, um, yeah, just this, like, walk in the park. He's saying that let us enter into this agonizing struggle, see? And you know why that like really intersects with um, just our culture? Uh, there's this interesting study that was done on Thomas Jefferson, right? Thomas Jefferson, who's famous for many things, but he talks about the pursuit of happiness, right? But Thomas Jefferson was also a technologist. So uh, when he built his mansions and like when you looked at his furniture, he was all about actually increasing comfort. It's a very interesting, the design of his mansion and all his furniture. Uh, and, you know, this one sociologist, historian, he was talking about how for Thomas Jefferson, the pursuit of happiness was basically the same thing as the pursuit of comfort. And the reason why I share this with you is because you cannot escape the reality that you become the air you breathe. You just, you, you cannot escape that, right? And um, I'm not saying that this DMV, Northern Virginia area, is like so unique. But in some ways, this area is really unique. Because this area is all about like, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think if you've come from anywhere else, you know this. It's all about comfort. Like, have you heard of that Mosaic District? That is, that is not natural. <laughs> like, and, um, and unfortunately, my kids are growing up as, like, Fairfax suburbanites. So I asked my second son, so what do you want for your birthday? And, you know, growing up, if my father asked me what I wanted for my birthday, it meant $5 gift. <laughs> you know, that's how, so I asked him, hey, Jordan, what do you want for your birthday? And he said, well, you know, at the Mosaic District, and then I'm following, I thought he was going to say something like, you know, the Target there. He's like, you know, like, there are these condos there, Right? <laughs> right above, like, the movie theater, right next to it. Like, do you think you could buy me one of those? <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, what? And he goes, like, because it's so comfortable. Like, you know, if you want pizza, you could go here. If you want Asian food, you could go here. You could go to Target. You could go watch a movie. It's just great. And, um, you know, I looked at him, and um, I said, well, he's not my son. <laughs> but... You see, I looked at him because children, and you know this, they're actually not very different from adults. They just don't know how to, you know, they haven't learned how to hide what they want. And so they're, and I want to suggest to you that for us, right, we probably love 
comfort more than we realize we do. We have, we have this love affair with comfort, right? And um, I want to suggest to you that it probably grips us more than we realize. And so when you hear the author say, let us run this race, right? It's basically like if you've seen pictures right now of like the uh, invasion in Ukraine, you see all these like the dilapidated buildings, uh, torn up streets. The author is saying, let us run this agonizing race. And I think it's helpful to see that and to realize, hmm, See, that's not what I want to naturally do. And that's actually very helpful. That's very helpful if you can look at that and be honest and say, and you know why? This is why. <clears throat> There's this great book. Uh, it's on marriage, and this is the title of the book. It's What Did You Expect? I mean, that is a brilliant title, right? <laughs> what Did You Expect? And so having done a lot of marriage counseling, this is what I've noticed. The couples that go into marriage thinking that it's basically going to be what at least Hollywood used to portray it to be. They're in for a, um, it's, uh, it's rough. And uh, they often are unduly disappointed. They're often unduly discouraged. But if you go into marriage sober, sober, meaning that you could actually marry the most perfect person but that person cannot fill your heart the way God can, cannot satisfy. If you enter marriage with that kind of expectation, it's actually okay. It's okay. And it works generally because you're sober. Does that make sense? Like, uh, I remember when I was dating my wife, uh, I was doing my PhD, and um, <clears throat> you know, she asked me, so what's your like PhD on? And I was telling her. And um, she didn't seem very interested. So I met with one of my older friends, and he's like, oh, how's your dating relationship going? I was like, well, she doesn't really seem interested in my doctorate work. And he says, let me tell you, ain't no one interested in what you're doing. <laughs> and he goes, that's the most boring, esoteric, irrelevant work out there, right? And he goes, I like her even more that she's not interested in what you're doing. <laughs> he says, she's a keeper. Uh, otherwise, she's a liar. I was like, oh, that's so insightful, right? But he actually made this really interesting comment. He said, your problem is that you have these unrealistic views of what marriage is going to be, and you're going to be very disappointed. And I use that as an analogy because, you see, friends, um, the author uses this word, and the original audience would have understood this. He's not saying, let's go on this nice walk with Jesus. It's, let's run this race. And again, the sooner you're like sober about the fact that this is going to be a challenge, in a lot of ways, when hardships arise, you're not that surprised. It's okay. So this might sound philosophical, but your perspective makes all the difference in the world. So the author is saying, this is a race. This is going to be agonizing, right? Now, just as a footnote, as a quick aside, there was this article in The Atlantic that did make an interesting perspective. Because you might be sitting there, you're like, oh, this Christianity thing, this is not for me, because I want to be happy. This author from The Atlantic, he wrote an interesting article, and he basically said, for some reason today, we think that being happy and suffering are opposites. It's a very interesting, uh, written by a secularist, and he said, but haven't you noticed this, that even when you are more comfortable, you're not necessarily happier. 
because throughout history we've known that happiness always comes from faith, friends, and family. Just as an aside, just something to consider. So that's number one, the perspective. Number two, how we are to run. Look at um, what the author says in verse 12, one more time. The author says, let us also lay aside every weight. And then the author says, and sin, which clings so closely. Interesting. So how are we to run? And the author says two things. First, uh, the author says, let us lay aside every weight. So what's going on there? And then the author says, and let us uh, cast away all sin. You see, this, the first part is so important. And uh, if I may, I'm going to read a quote from a famous uh, preacher, but he has something that's really insightful here. Listen to what he says. I remember the effect this verse had on me as a boy when I heard someone explain that we must lay aside not only sins, but every encumbrance. That is, every weight or obstacle, things that in themselves may not be sins. Did you all get that? That's very important. He says, let us lay aside things that in themselves may not be sins. He writes, this was revolutionary. What it did was show me that the fight of faith is not fought well or run well by asking, well, what's wrong with this or that? Is it sin? But does it help me run or is it in the way? As a boy, I was mightily helped by having my very categories changed in the way I live my life. I commend it to you, young people especially. Doesn't ask about your music, your movies, your parties, your habits, what's wrong with it. Ask, does it help me to run well? Did everyone get that? that that's so brilliant. So see, what Dr. John Piper is saying is that, you see, we often ask this question, well, is it sin? Is it bad? Like, and he says, that's not really the question you should ask. You should ask this question. Will this help me to run well? It's a, it's a very different question, right? And so as you live life, right, you have to begin to ask this question. By the way, it's very real. It's very real. Um, often when you make decisions, right, do you ask the question of, like, will this actually help me to run the race well? And so let me give you a basic example. <clears throat> a buddy of mine uh, recently asked me, hey, I'm thinking about, like, buying a, like, a vacation home in Orlando. And I said do it because <laughs> I want to use it. Right? So I said, you should totally do it. And he goes, well, you know, like it's actually a lot of like, it's like a lot of pain because, um, you know, like you only go there a few times a year, but it's very distracting. And I said, oh, it's no problem. Hire a management company. You know, I'm really pushing this. But he then said something very interesting. He said, well, I feel like what's going to happen is that if I buy this vacation home, my mind is going to constantly think about what's going on in Orlando. And it's going to keep me from thinking about life here. It's going to distract me from my family. It's going to distract me from my church. I think in the end, it's actually not going to really help me to like follow Jesus. I was very disappointed by his godliness. <laughs> I said, I can't disagree with that. And um, I said, yeah, you shouldn't do it. And you see, that's a great example where 
instead of asking, hey, is it bad? Is it sinful, right? And we could go down that road. He was asking a better question. He was asking, will this actually help me to run well? That's what the author's talking about. And I, that's why John Piper was saying that's so category-breaking. So that's on the one hand, right? And I want to commend that to you. That's actually a really helpful way to approach life. Like, given my chances are not great that I might, you know, not finish this race, I do want to ask, will this help me to run well? So that's what the author is getting at. Let us lay aside every weight. But then what does the author mean when he says, let us set aside every sin that clings so closely? Now, we could just suggest a number of sins here, right? But in the context of Hebrews, this is what the author is talking about. Do you remember that passage when the author says, by this point, you know, you should be eating food, but you're still drinking milk. By this point, you should be teachers, but you're still babes. And this is what the author is getting at. What is the main sin? What is the main sin in Hebrews? It's this. It's coasting. Coasting. Coasting in such a way that you're no longer sharp. Okay? And if I can illustrate it very uh, basically, it's this. Um, When you use a calculator a lot, what do you notice happens? Like your ability to do arithmetic actually drops exponentially, right? You're not as sharp, you know, mathematically. And the author is saying something very similar here that for many Christians, and maybe some of you are new, and do you, and maybe some of you have been Christians for a long time, but do you remember when you first became a Christian? You're like all gung ho. You're reading your Bible through your Bible like once or twice a year. You're memorizing scripture. You're like, uh, you know, participating in Bible studies. And so you're growing. You're becoming sharper, right? But what tends to happen as life goes on is you begin to coast. Do you know what? Like, is it only I? Like, I don't know. But like you begin to coast. And in the process, instead of progressing, instead of becoming more like Jesus, you start regressing. And that's what the author is saying happens for so many of us. It's this mindset, been there, done that, okay, yada, yada, yada. And see, the author is saying that as a believer, you can't be stagnant. That's like, that's fiction. Either you are becoming more like Jesus. You're becoming not just sharper theologically, your instincts, your spiritual instincts are improving. You know how to live in this world wisely. Or you're actually getting much worse, right? The author is saying this, if I can just say, state it very uh, even more basically. Don't assume that just because you apparently converted 10, 20 years ago, that you grow spontaneously, that you just grow naturally. The author is saying that that's coasting. You only grow when you continue to do your best to know the word of God, to know the gospel, to apply it to your heart, right? And then to live it out in the world. And that's why, like, have you noticed? I mean, do you, have you, has this happened? Where you meet someone and that person claims he's been a believer for 15 years. And you're, and yet you meet someone that's been a believer for five years. And how is it that the five-year-old seems so much more mature? You see? It's just a number if you coast. And that's what the author is saying. That's what happens for many of us. And maybe that has begun to happen in your life. You know, that's the sin. When you hear this thing, sin that clings so closely, you might be thinking, oh, pride. 
oh, like sex, oh, greed. Yes, those are heinous sins. But here, the author's talking about the sin of coasting. Just, you know, like, you're sort of a Christian, you're in, you're out, and he's saying that's what's going to kill you. You see, like, have you ever noticed in the Bible, isn't it interesting? People always freak out when an angel appears. Like, every time an angel appears, people are like, holy smokes, right? Isn't that interesting? Whenever Satan appears, no one's scared. I just think that, that that's really noteworthy. And so when my kids, like, ask me, what do you think Satan looks like? I say, like, your best friend. <laughs> like, like, he just looks, he just like, because you see, for most of us, uh, no, that's not true. But, like, but for most of us, Satan is smart. He's not going to be like, oh, yeah, like this person. I'm going to destroy his life by, you know, allowing him to fall into egregious infidelity. And this girl, I can tell she's very, you know, like for Satan, he's like, ah, just let them be. That's why in that uh, great book, Screwtape Letters, what, how does chapter one begin? There's this person, he's having like a spiritual awakening. He's thinking about transcendence. Then all of a sudden, what happens? Does he see a gorgeous woman walk by? No. Does he see someone drop like a Bitcoin if that's possible? No. What do we see? He starts to think about, hmm, what's for lunch? And hey, I got to go to Costco later. And then got to pay my bills. See, that's what the author is getting at, this temptation to coast. So that's number two. How do we run well? We have to ask better questions, like what will help me to run well? We also have to combat the tendency to coast. But finally, what should be our motivation? <clears throat> and there are two. It's like the author of Hebrews, brilliant. He gives what I call a horizontal motivation and then the vertical. Uh, there's, we have to read a few verses before. So let me read from verse 39 of chapter 11. <clears throat> and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. That, this is a fascinating verse, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Huh. How does this motivate us uh, horizontally? And the best answer is actually given in Westminster Short Catechism, uh, is at number 37. Listen to what uh, this catechism says. The souls of believers are at their death when you died, you're made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. So you're with Jesus. But their bodies, being still united in Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. You see, what, this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. When you and I die, we are going to be with Jesus, but our bodies are not yet going to be redeemed, right? Because we're going to be, you know, resurrection. And so... What the author is saying is that bodily resurrection and full redemption happens when all the saints finish the race. And how should this motivate us? Like, what difference does this make, right? It's sort of like this. Let's say there's this, like, epic party. Epic party that's about to take place. I mean, everything is set up, right? But this is the problem, you haven't yet arrived. See, that's what the author is saying. You haven't yet arrived. And it's like getting a phone call and saying, hey, you know, like, everyone's here, and we're ready to celebrate, but we can't begin until you come. The author is saying that until the saints 
finish the race, right? Full redemption can't happen. And when you think about that, that's why chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, it, has, it uses language cloud of witnesses. Like if you look at the Olympics, right, the, crowd, the crowds of saints are saying, finish the race. The full redemption, celebration cannot happen until you finish. See, that should motivate us. That should motivate us, like, horizontally. But vertically, and this makes all the difference in the world, listen to what the author says here. And we sang about it. It It's so so beautiful, the new song. Verse 2 says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me end in this way. You will run this agonizing race, and you will finish to the degree that you see that this is what Jesus did for us. His race was not an easy stroll, as you know, the road to Calvary. And yet, because he loved us, because he loved us so deeply, right, he finished the race so that by his death, resurrection and ascension you and i might have hope in this life and the life to come and it makes all the difference in the world that's why like perseverance is not about like you can do it just look inside no nothing in there okay (laughs) no it's you can do it by fixing your eyes on jesus it's like this and we'll end in this way um some of you can identify with this in, in different ways, right? Um, maybe many of you can, but one of the experiences of immigrants, right, is that as you live your life, uh, I think this is true especially for Eastern cultures, but immigrant culture works like this. It's not individualistic. It's not just follow your hopes and dreams. That's definitely, like, we had none of that talk when we were growing up. It was this. You need to remember what dad and mom have done for you, and then now go and do life, right? Now, you know, it's a little fuzzy because my dad's anecdotes always get more elaborate. It used to be like I would walk one mile in the snow to school, and by the time I was 20, it became like 10 miles. I was like, (laughs) really? But, you know, but you know one thing I do remember as I do my life? I cannot help but think about my mom and dad. I cannot... You know, I just remember this one time. I was like only four or five. We were at this uh, deli. We were just ordering a sandwich. But my mom, you know, she had just come from Korea, and she was like uh, 25, 26. And she was asking like for like a ham sandwich. And the store clerk was, I remember he was a cruel man, because she said, uh, one sandwich? And he's like, what? She goes, one sandwich, please. And he goes, what? What? What are you talking about? She goes, you know what I'm talking about? And he began to mock her. She began. She got angry, which means her uh, inflections got worse. <laughs> it was just a tough. And I remember like walking out with her, and I saw like tears in her eyes. I was like, hmm. And so I asked her. I said, Hey, mom, what was it like uh, coming from like Korea to America? And she said. You try leaving America when you're like 25, 26, and you'll see. Like, you don't know the culture, you don't know the language. And so I asked her, so why'd you do it? And she says, 
oh, you are dumb. <laughs> she, she says, why do you think we did this so that you and your siblings could have a better life? And that's why, as I live life, I can't help but just think about my parents in that sense. The author of Hebrews says that we have someone much greater. We have Jesus, the Son of God, who came to earth. He, came, he was born into poverty. And then the father basically said, you have to, road, you have to uh, walk the road of Calvary. You have to carry the cross, and you have to bear my full wrath. Because only if you finish this race can the people have any hope. And Jesus said, I will, out of love for them. See, friends, like, to the degree that you can see that's who Jesus is. He ran the race for us. To the degree that you see that and you celebrate that, you too will be able to do the same. Okay? Let's pray together. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we, we praise you. We love you. Because your race from the very beginning was miserable. You knew that the final destination was the cross. You knew that on the cross, you would bear the full wrath of God, the Father. But you ran this race until the bitter end so that by your death, by your victory, we might have hope. So I pray that even now as we begin to conclude the service, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, and I pray that your spirit would overwhelm us with who he is, what he has done, so that we too might finish the race that is set before us. It's for his sake and in the son's name.